Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trunar Nuenheim, futurist and author. In episode five of the podcast, the topic is the future of decentralized finance. Our guest is Dan Elitzer, investor at IDEO Collab Ventures. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Trot. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, so, you know, I'm so happy you were coming on on, on the show today. And I wanted to just uh, acknowledge that it's been a while since we we met back at Sloan and you've done so many exciting things. I'm just going to list off some of them. You, you're currently an investor at IDEO, uh, the Colab Ventures. But I, I looked yeah. back in your background and you've, you've been working for some foundations and NGOs uh, earlier. Yeah. Foundation. Yeah. Before I was at uh, MIT Sloan for my MBA, I worked in the nonprofit sector. I worked at Grameen Foundation, which is an organization that supports microfinance and different uh, financial and technological tools to empower uh, people in developing countries. And uh, then in the process of doing that is when I fell down the, uh, the Bitcoin rabbit hole. The Bitcoin rabbit hole. I guess uh, I've been down that hole a little bit as well. I remember back in, it must be back in 2014 when uh, my uh, consulting firm at the time did a study on Bitcoin's impact on, on banks. And since then, a lot has happened to, to both Bitcoin and banks, I, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been an interesting period. I'll say that for sure. The last time we met, you were at the MIT Sloan FinTech uh, conference and, and the student organization around FinTech. Tell us, tell us a, a little bit about that, how, how you kind of got into FinTech during your, your time at Sloan. Sure. Well, I'd, I'd kind of had that FinTech interest coming in, as I mentioned, uh, with my previous part of my career being focused on that intersection of finance and technology. And the FinTech club at, at MIT Sloan was something that I helped start with a number of classmates. And it was really just being inspired by how things were starting to change and the new capabilities that were coming to the forefront. And at the same time as uh, I was starting that, I also started the MIT Bitcoin club to really go deeper on Bitcoin and on what became a, a broader interest in cryptocurrencies, crypto assets, blockchain technology, uh, and all the possibilities that that, that whole sector entails. And I, I do think it dovetails very nicely with fintech. And I've become increasingly convinced over the last five or six years that in the future, these two areas will become increasingly combined. So we'll talk more about that. I just wanted to uh, touch on this that didn't all MIT students get some Bitcoin at some point and what was it worth <laughs> yes. then and what is it worth now? Yeah, so uh, at the time uh, Jeremy Rubin who was an undergrad and I teamed up to work on the MIT Bitcoin project and we announced that in the spring of 2014 and then in the fall of 2014 we ran a study where we enabled every MIT undergrad to receive $100 worth of Bitcoin which at the time I think it was worth somewhere in the you know, three hundred to four hundred dollar range. Uh, so, you know, today I think it's floating around nine thousand dollars. So, those students have done quite well who held on to it. Uh, but the goal at the time was really to understand more about what could happen 
in a world where you can assume that your peers all have access to Bitcoin as well. Uh, because there's always this bootstrapping, bootstrapping problem with new technologies. We've thought, hey, this is a pretty tight-knit community. If a group of very smart young people who are largely technical all had access to Bitcoin, what would they do with it? What could they build with it or on top of it? And, and how would they use or not use it? And uh, we, we saw some interesting results. So I guess that one thing that has happened is that it's not just technical people that are interested in this anymore, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, some people with financial interests and kind of interests around monetary theory were some of the early adopters too. Uh, but it's it's grown well beyond that. And you've got a lot of people coming at it from both a technical perspective and a financial perspective. And I think in the industry, a lot of people tend to break it down almost East Coast, West Coast, uh, in terms of New York kind of being the, the center of finance and people on the East Coast coming at it from very much a financial uh, innovation perspective. And then people on the West Coast coming at this space really from a kind of technology innovation perspective. That's really interesting. I think that, you know, obviously in order to have uh, immense impact, uh, it has to cater as a technology to, to various communities. In the interest of, there's just such a concept soup in this uh, area. Could you just summarize a few of these terms as we're getting into decentralized finance? Let me just list off a few and you can add, add some more. But just for the benefit of our discussion, even, you know, there's the notion of cryptocurrency, which we were onto with Bitcoin. There's the blockchain protocol and what that all means. There's tokens, which is kind of an interesting concept. Uh, all the way up to kind of decentralized finance and a bunch of other things around that. Could you just unbundle some of those things real quick? Sure. Uh, let's start with Bitcoin because that's where it all began. And I think it's the, the simplest one to understand. When people talk about Bitcoin, they're talking about a protocol, uh, the Bitcoin protocol. They're talking about a network of computers that are all running the Bitcoin protocol and are software and are communicating with each other. Um, and then they're talking about Bitcoin, the asset, often you know, using the symbol BTC. And so Bitcoin is often referred to as a cryptocurrency. Uh, I think in some ways it's a bit of a misnomer. When people think currency, uh, they have a lot of preconceptions that come along with it that Bitcoin doesn't really fit into. And that often causes people to just dismiss it because they say this couldn't possibly be a currency. This couldn't possibly be money. Uh, but you've got that asset that runs on this network, right? It exists on the Bitcoin network, uh, which uh, is updating a blockchain, which is an immutable ledger that is shared among a network of computers. And it allows for what I like to think about it getting a little technical here is row by row permissions, right? Anybody can update the database uh, to move their Bitcoin, right? To update the record of who owns a Bitcoin that they currently own, but nobody can update anybody else's record. You can only update your own. And that was a, a big breakthrough. And uh, we've now seen that you can use blockchains and, and protocols like this to enable a whole host of applications and use cases beyond just tracking a single asset like Bitcoin. So when you say tokens, tokens usually refer to assets that are issued on a blockchain network, uh, the Ethereum network being 
the most popular one at this stage for issuing tokens. And people then are building applications that use these tokens in various ways. And they can resemble money or currencies. They can resemble things that are closer to equities. They can resemble debt instruments. There are all sorts of different types of assets that you can create on these blockchains that are represented through tokens that can be transferred. And real quick, isn't it also true that you know some of these tokens in the beginning and in, in some sort of startups' minds when they were creating this idea of tokens, they don't necessarily, they didn't initially represent anything external to the network, but they can in various ways be converted to, to also to cash. But, but that's not necessarily the point of these tokens, or, or am I wrong? Right. I think there's, there's a big range of things that they can represent. I think what we saw in 2017, when we had this boom in ICOs or initial coin offerings, what was largely being created was akin to gift cards. These people were issuing these tokens that were meant to be used for a very specific application, kind of like a specific business. And there wasn't really a lot of reason to do that from a kind of business or user perspective. It was largely about fundraising, and that makes it look a lot like a security. And so that was problematic in in terms of how that was approached. Uh, What we've seen since then, right, after the hype died down and people started thinking more deeply, okay, we're past this initial hype, what are these tokens actually useful for? And one of the answers is, well, you can use these digitally scarce tokens to represent ownership over a protocol. And you can use that to govern that protocol and make changes to it, right? If you think about how traditionally open source software has been maintained and updated, uh, it's it's kind of a very mushy process, right? Very soft. It'll happen in various discussion forums, on GitHub, on places like that. But ultimately, there is somebody who holds the right to update a you know code repository. Uh, there's somebody who can kind of make a, a final decision there. And if you want this to be truly decentralized, actually doing it through a provable fashion of like we are essentially having a vote and based on your weight and your ownership of these tokens, you can have more influence in terms of how a network or protocol or application is going to evolve going forward. You know, when you explain it that way, it seems pretty transparent. But I would say a a lot of the discussion about how quickly this particular type of fintech instrument is going to kind of wash over the field of finance has to do with trust, doesn't it? So how much trust was sort of lost in this ICO situation where uh, a couple of years ago, a bunch of startups, like you pointed out, we're trying to raise money, some in dubious ways, others completely legitimately, but without really having the asset clarified or representing anything truly beyond the fact that it was a promise of something in the future. So as, uh, you know, as you pointed out, it was a fundraising instrument purely. Yeah, and I think people tried to paint it as different things. I, it, it's... It's not uh, insignificant that most people's initial impression of this technology, of this industry, uh, was uh, about a lot of hype and around something that was clearly not sustainable. Uh, So I'll I'll just say that up front. But I've got to say, having been focused entirely on this space for the last six or seven years, 
the past few years have been wonderful for building uh, because a lot of people who came to make a quick buck have gotten out. And those who are still here and still building are those who deeply appreciate the potential of this technology and of this space and are building what I believe are the foundations for a real overhaul of our financial system. And in terms of creating one that is much more uh, inclusive, much more accessible, and is able to innovate at a much, much, much faster pace than has ever previously been possible. Well, and, and if that's true, that's truly exciting, right? For a sector, if you, if you just talk about the financial sector, although I, I think as we will talk about this, this has ramifications way, way beyond finance as such. And that's, I think, one of the complexities as, you know, that we will cover here. But if it truly uh, enables various sectors to innovate faster, I guess that's one of the big things that we have all realized, uh, you know, in, in sort of this day and age that uh, this kind of innovation, you know, could be really, really interesting to, uh, to make use of. Let's now move more into sort of this recent development of decentralized finance and the, the paradigms that are uh, starting to emerge here. You are very optimistic as I read your the timber of your voice when you talk about decentralized finance. What is decentralized finance? Is it kind of the sum of the things that we have been talking about now, or is it something more in addition to that? Uh, largely it is. So the way I like to describe uh, the kind of end goal of decentralized finance, um, or I actually prefer the more accessible term open finance, um, is that we are building tools that will make it possible for anyone anywhere in the world to be able to access or create any financial instruments that they can imagine. And that can be their own currency, that can be, you know, issuing their own shares of uh, some kind of venture organization, this could be creating new types of financial derivative products, whatever you can think of, you can create these things and you can remix them. And there is no intermediary who can tell you yes or no. Uh, you just merely need to find somebody else who also wants to use this thing that you've created. And that's the kind of thing that we saw happen with kind of publishing with the internet, right? And kind of this whole, like the web 2.0 movement, which was largely about user-created contact content. We are now entering a phase of kind of user-created finance where anybody in the world can take power over their ability to interact with money and value and their financial well-being in a way that's never previously been possible. You know, this brings to mind for me um, the fact that in fields where that previously had some people controlling them, notably finance and politics and, and you know, even media. And you know, obviously all industries have a, a power structure. What does this do to the power structure when it increasingly becomes possible for players, like you said, anyone ostensibly to, to really shake up the system or at least to, to act more as independent actors and not just be fully constrained really by either monopolies or just existing models and ways of doing things that are either inefficient or unfair in terms of access you know what does it do though to the people that sit there with vested power 
I mean, I, I, I was alluding to the 2004, uh, 14 study that we did on, on Bitcoin. One of the issues there, of course, was, you know, banks, what are they going to do? Are they going to experiment with this? Are they going to ignore it? And if they embrace it, what does it mean to them? Would you say that there's a maturity now among kind of the powers uh, that be that this, even though it is disruptive, also can have value for, for, for those players? Or would you say that they have kind of concluded the opposite, that this is going to be a, a massive change, which when it sort of really shows up, is going to really change everybody's playing field? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I will say that you know, starting around that 2014, 2015 era, uh, I was actually very impressed at how some of the large banks and financial institutions were starting to take seriously um, what what they've referred to as blockchain technology, right? And and I don't think it's catching them unaware. I'm not sure that they all have a full understanding of of the likely direction that things are headed. But I don't think this is going to disrupt banks uh, and, and obsolete them. I think it will change their role and where some of their growth opportunities lay. But it's not going to you know, end the banks. Um, it, it's just merely opening up a much, much broader playing field and letting other new entrants come in and move a lot faster. Right. We're moving from a world where it's a default no, right? You need to ask somebody's permission to access financial networks and financial protocols to a default yes, where anybody can interact with these open networks, these open protocols without having to ask anybody else's permission. I mean, it's a very positive picture you, you paint here, Dan. It, it, it would be wonderful if, uh, if that really is the direction it's going. Can we talk for a second about um, the finance uh, numbers here. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's pick pick some markets that you're excited about. I know you were pointing out to me uh, an actor, this is just one actor called Compound Finance. Maybe we can start with them. Um, just to show what kinds of numbers and what sort of size impact this is starting to have on various smaller markets. So what... Yeah. What what are the numbers really in in decentralized finance right now? How how significant of a force is it? Yeah, it's it's still very nascent. I'll say that first. Uh, so I think there's currently around 1.6 billion dollars uh, worth of various assets that are deposited into these various DeFi protocols. Compound Finance is currently the largest. It has around 600 million dollars um, today in in assets in it. And it's a, uh, I would say, money market protocol. It's a protocol to allow uh, anybody to permissionlessly uh, loan or borrow uh, certain assets. And these are all, you know, to be clear, these are all crypto assets that exist on the Ethereum network. Got it. And what are the growth rates, uh, you know, year on year in this market for people who care about that kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's been an absolute hockey stick, um, even over just the past few months. Uh, Compound uh, a little over a month ago, I think, was sitting on around a hundred million dollars in assets, and it's just you know, and that was it got there over the period of about a year or so. So that you know, even that was pretty incredible growth. But they just kicked off a a new evolution to their model, 
which has kicked them and a lot of others in the space into this kind of hyper growth moment where uh, hearkening back to the the thing we talked about earlier with tokens, they have started distributing a governance token over their protocol to users of the protocol. So they've set aside about 42, 43% of their tokens to give out to, to users who borrow and lend through this protocol to eventually essentially hand over governance of the protocol entirely to users or whoever um, ends up holding those tokens. And I think that's uh, incredibly exciting. It's, it's created a massive subsidies uh, effectively because people are valuing these tokens and saying, uh, you know, this is adding to the effective interest rate I'm earning as a lender or uh, in some cases, uh, such a heavy subsidy that it was even leading to negative rates on, on borrowing. Uh, but it's, it's led to this astronomical level of growth, which... Uh, I, I think does have some shades of that, you know, 2017 ICO boom we talked about in terms of some of the mania that it's setting off. But what we are also seeing is that it is, uh, in, in cases, leading to sustained growth that exists even once the incentives are removed. You know, for example, there was one particular market that had been heavily incentivized within Compound. It started with less than a million dollars. In, uh, in borrowing. And even once the incentives had been largely taken away from it, it was now over $50 million in borrowing. And so these incentives are proving to be very effective to bootstrap networks and bootstrap liquidity. And I think it's ultimately going to lead to them being of the size where they can start being interesting to people outside this currently small industry and, and really create globally accessible uh, markets for borrowing and lending. And, and the most popular assets are actually dollar denominated assets. These are often referred to as stable coins or crypto dollars. So there's the ability to get much higher yields uh, from lending these crypto dollars via compound than you can earn in your bank account. And it's accessible to anybody anywhere in the world, not just people with access to a U.S. dollar denominated account within the traditional banking system. You know, this is fascinating and it clearly, you know, has impact on the financial services industry and on financial actors and on individuals' ability to kind of become truly financial actors on their own, which is very powerful. But there's also this idea that these protocols and, and the decentralization could affect many, many other industries. I know, you know, the energy industry has been exploring this. A bunch of other industries have looked at it, like you said, you know, publishing, it's interesting potentially for, for that purpose. Can you give us some examples of areas quite beyond finance where this is starting to at least uh, to be experimented with and, and some results that are coming out of that? Yeah, so we, we've actually done some experiments uh, within IDEO Colab dating back to it was like 2016 where we were looking at the intersections of blockchains and, and IoT devices. And we built a prototype with um, NASDAQ and uh, a, a large energy firm and a small startup back in, in 2016 that showed how you could actually connect a solar panel to a blockchain to issue renewable energy certificates and create an audit trail for that. 
and allow these uh, kind of energy credits to be traded on a blockchain. Uh, so that's kind of one area that, that we've seen. Um, there have been a lot of applications around applying blockchains to supply chains. Uh, there have been some very big initiatives there, uh, which I think you know have, have a lot of potential in the future. But I think that in a lot of ways, what we need now is to focus on the more financial use cases, because I do think that those are uh, kind of the first place where we're going to see a wedge for this technology. And once we have robust open financial infrastructure, it will be much easier to tie in uh, some of these other applications that may not be directly financial in nature. Got it. Um, and I want to I want to move into talking a little bit about IDEO, which is fascinating in a second. But but uh, can you just give us a sense first on on the timeline? So what we're talking about now. So I I just asked about kind of the beyond finance use cases, and and you know it's obviously si- since the use case is very nascent, even within finance. Of course, in other sectors, it's going to be even longer timelines. Give me a your best guess on kind of when is decentralized finance the default or at least a default uh, option for finance? And secondly, when is it going to be in a significant way moving into, let's say, a, a pack of other industries? Yeah, I think we have... Um probably a de- another decade to go at least uh, before we see uh, decentralized finance uh, moving the traditional financial world in a way that everybody is paying attention to. Uh, I, I think it's similar to the evolution of how we think about the internet, right? In terms of we used to have internet companies and internet startups. And today it, it would almost it's, it sounds silly to say, oh, I'm, I'm starting an internet company, right? <laughs> and I think that that's going <laughs> right, to be the, right. the same thing with uh, a lot of these decentralized finance tools uh, that eventually it's, it's going to be silly to say I'm starting a DeFi company or DeFi project. It's just going to be part of the tool set that you must use to be competitive doing anything that, that touches financial services. That's exciting. And, you know, and let's move into talking about startups in a second. But first, you know, IDEO, it's such a storied place. And it's kind of the home, I think of it as the home of design thinking. And fascinating place. How is it to work there? What, what have you learned? What have you uh, discovered that's stimulated you in a different way than, um, you know, other places you worked? Oh, it's, it's been incredible. I, I'm surrounded by such amazing creative colleagues uh, who, who have not just uh, what I think most people traditionally think of as design backgrounds, right? They're not necessarily visual designers. Um, IDEO thinks of design very broadly as a process that can apply to, uh, to business and to organizations. And so we have business designers and organization designers and interaction designers. Um, there's, there's so many different disciplines. So it, it's incredibly inspiring to be around people who have very different skill sets and backgrounds and force me to think about things differently. Uh, I, I never imagined that I would work at IDEO because I hadn't thought of myself as a designer. Uh, but what appealed to me about joining IDEO when I was kind of looking out in 2015 and saying, I want to have an impact in this industry, uh, you know, where should I go? And it was amazing to me that IDEO had the foresight in 2015 to be starting this research group 
looking at how design could impact the evolution of blockchain technology and, and other emerging technologies, but at the time, primarily blockchain technology. And that foresight was incredible. Um, and I, I think that one of the big things that we're, we're still in need of in this industry is more application of design thinking and more putting users at the center of product development so that we can bridge the gap and get this over the chasm and really reach the potential to reach mainstream users. So you work in a place that's called IDEO Colab Ventures. What is the venture part? Are you actually investing in ventures or are you exploring more partnering with them? We're, we're actually investing in ventures. So IDEO Colab was started about uh, five and a half years ago, and it was a collaborative R&D lab. Uh, so we, we kind of were very similar and took a lot of inspiration from the MIT Media Lab in terms of having corporate members um, who we partnered with. But I, I think the big difference for the first few years was we really built hand in hand with the, the corporate members and with a lot of kind of academic partners that we worked with as well. So it was a real, very collaborative hands-on process. But through that, we were getting very close to a lot of these early stage startups that were really on the bleeding edge of this new technology. And uh, we realized that we could do a lot more and we could, we could scale up better if we were able to inject capital into the ones that we had the strongest conviction around. And so a few of us on the team kind of on the side said, okay, well, let's, let's pull some of our own money together and start making a few of these investments. Um, and then we were very fortunate to find, uh, you know, a, a family office that also, you know, agreed with our approach and co-invested with us. And we then went to the IDEO leadership and said, Hey, uh, what do you think about us starting a venture fund? And by the way, we've already got a little bit of a track record. Um, and, uh, they were, they were very receptive. And so we ended up creating Audio Collab Ventures and we uh, launched our, our first fund um, a couple years ago now, almost two years ago, and started investing in early stage companies in this space. We, we termed it broadly uh, distributed web startups. And so that encompasses what we've talked about as decentralized finance. It touches on anything blockchain or crypto related. Uh, and we've made... Uh, a couple dozen investments to date, uh, mostly at the pre-seed and seed stage. And uh, while I think the the majority of them have had a very strong uh, either DeFi or kind of fintech component to them, uh, you know there are some other things that are more around the future of work and uh, gaming related things or pure infrastructure things that we're also very excited about. Can you give me a couple of examples, not necessarily and, and, not, and not uniquely the uh, companies that you've invested in, but you know, if you look at the broad space, you know, everything that you see in, uh, in De uh, DeFi, what are some of the notable emerging startups, perhaps not just the famous ones that uh, a lot of the insiders would have heard of, but some emerging ones that you are particularly intrigued by, you know, maybe not necessarily because you feel like they're investable at the moment, but they're interesting and emerging because they are, I don't know, chanting the chant of, of completely different business models or, 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 you know, are exploring things that are really uh, going to be key to, to the future. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm uh, trying to come up with ones that we haven't invested in to not, not just talk my book, but one that I am very excited about that, that we did invest in is called Pool Together. 
And they're actually building on top of uh, Compound, that protocol that we, we discussed earlier. And what they're doing is they've created a protocol for uh, a, an incentivized uh, prize-linked savings account. And so the idea here, and it's not a, it's not a new one in the world, but it, I think the application of it in this space is, is really unique. Uh, the idea is that people can deposit essentially digital dollars um, into an account and they are their own custodian for that account. So nobody else can kind of take that away from them. They've, they've got it. And uh, every day or every week, depending on which account they choose, there is a drawing and a prize is assigned to one of the depositors. And that prize is made up of the interest that is accrued across all of the deposits. And so as a user, you can take out your, your initial deposit at any time, right? And so that's where the kind of no loss element comes in here. But uh, the, the interest is then randomly distributed to one of the depositors, you know, relative to the odds of winning or relative to the amount of deposits you have. Um, and so it, what, so it enables a different type of gamblers to get into the gambling market or something? Yeah, well, so interestingly, this type of, of um, offering has existed for, for a long time. There's premium bonds in the UK. Um, I've actually been following this concept for, for over a decade now. Um, in the state of Michigan, a bunch of credit unions over a decade ago ran a, a pilot program called Save to Win. And they had... Uh, I'm I'm uh, not sure I'm going to get the exact right numbers right now, but they they had somewhere over twenty thousand um, households participate, and they had to lock up their funds for a year, essentially, in these accounts um, for relatively small prizes. And what they found was that uh, those who participated in this uh, in this pilot program uh, that roughly fifty uh, percent of them had not previously had a regular savings habit and that 60% of them had played the lottery in the previous six months. So what they found was that this was actually a very effective psychological tool to redirect gambling behavior into savings behavior. And so I think that this insight of the ability to marry uh, understanding of human psychology with some of these new financial tools, we can create tools and pull together is creating tools that are promoting financial health by better understanding of human psychology to incentivize them to do behaviors that are ultimately good for them. Well, now we're, we're getting on to some interesting areas and I'll give you a few more seconds to reflect on, you know, possibly other startups because uh, it brings me to a thing that you had revealed to me that you're you actually got a background as a gamer. So you, you, you're really <laughs> interested in these games. You, you played at the gathering. Magic together. Tell us about what's so fascinating about these games and gaming. I mean, it's a massive field, but it's more serious than just, <laughs> a game is very serious is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think I think games are, are are wonderful. I mean, fun is important. Um, I, I think I learned a lot about strategy, um, playing playing games, uh, not just in my youth, but but you know, throughout throughout my adulthood as well. And uh, I, I do think that the idea of looking at game mechanics and understanding how you can incentivize or reinforce certain behaviors, how you uh, how systems react based on individual actions and decisions are, are very important. And I think that uh, that served me well. And, and some of the other people that I see doing very, very smart stuff in crypto, in decentralized finance, 
are often referencing various types of game mechanics in their designs uh, because we know that those are useful mechanics for engaging people and getting them to take certain actions. Right. Well, I'm going to ask you now, uh, because some of these things are really hard to fathom, frankly. I mean, it's a sector that's moving fast. It's slightly technical still, even though I agree with you, it has moved more into fields that are easier to understand. The platforms are becoming you know, more user-friendly. How do you... How do you explore this field in a fruitful way if you start from, I don't know, scratch, but you start from a, you know, a fresh, you start fresh and how do you stay current? Yeah, that's a great question. It is really uh, hard to kind of get into. Uh, what I will say is the best way to do it is to try using it. And now I'm going to mention a couple of companies that I'm not invested in, but I just think very highly of them. Uh, one is called Argent, A-R-G-E-N-T. And another is Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A. And they both have uh, what I, I would call um, DeFi wallets. And so these are kind of user-controlled wallets, but they have an amazing experience where I think it's, it's pretty friendly to uh, people who are new to the space. And it gives them access to some of these DeFi tools and services in a way that, that's pretty magical. And I think... Uh, trying those out for yourself and seeing how they work, uh, hopefully it will be enough to get people uh, intrigued and, and want to go and learn more. I think uh, if they do want to dive in deeper, there's uh, some good uh, industry news sites and newsletters and publications that I, I recommend. I think uh, Camilla Russo with The Defiant does a great job. Laura Shin, who writes for Forbes, has a couple of podcasts unconfirmed and unchained that are excellent. Uh, there's another um, publication, Bankless, if you're looking for more kind of the, uh, how do I actually put some of the stuff into practice? Bankless is, is fantastic. Um, and, uh, you know, I think once you, you start reading a few of these things, um, hopefully it will trigger something and say, I, I want to go deeper, I want to learn more. Uh, but I think there's, there's still those those two wallets are a great place to start for for using it and and experiencing what the benefits can be. And would you say that you spend like how how much time do you spend just tracking the field versus kind of like you said acting in it, which is also important? Would you like what? What kind of time does it take for, let's say, an investor, a venture investor, wants to switch some allocation of their portfolio into decentralized finance or, you know, whatever term they they use, you know, blockchain investments? Let's say I, I want to allocate twenty percent. Do I then? Um, I mean, is it a, is it a complicated field compared to other fields you are tracking? Well, if you well, I'm I'm entirely focused on you know this kind of distributed web technology and almost entirely on decentralized finance. And I think there's, I, I spend <laughs> you know, all, all, all my time when I'm not with my family <laughs> thinking about this and then focused on it. And it's hard for me to keep up. Uh, there's, there's just so much happening right now. So I think, you know, if you're going to be an investor who's trying to pick and choose individual investments in this space, uh, I, I think you really have to spend some time going deep and 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 really be focused full time on it. It's hard to do as one of the sectors that you're you're covering among others. Uh, I think that you know for 
for people who are not full-time investors but are looking to get some exposure to the space, uh, you know, there are a number of funds that you can go into that that do have people who are full, focused full-time on it. And I think that, you know, there are some things like uh, Bitcoin and uh, the currency for Ethereum, Ether or ETH. I think those things are, you know, not not to give financial advice, but those things are, uh, in my view, they've been largely correlated with the the growth of the possibilities on these networks. And so I encourage people who are looking to um, get involved in the space in some way to first look at kind of those base layer things to understand them uh, because they're they're the the building blocks. And if you don't understand those building blocks, it's going to be really hard to get deeper into some of the more idiosyncratic pieces. That's great. That's great advice. A lot of my listeners are corporate innovators. They work in large, large corporations. So what are some of the best case studies on how large corporations are starting to embrace these trends? Uh, that's, uh, that's a great question. So I think that, uh, you know, we, we've worked with, um, some companies, including, uh, you know, Citibank through their city ventures arm and NASDAQ and Fidelity, um, have really been leaders in the space. Uh, if you're thinking about it from the financial services perspective, uh, Fidelity has been an absolute leader. You know, they launched their Fidelity digital assets subsidiary, uh, was it a year or two ago. Um, and they've really, I think understood more deeply than than pretty much any large corporate out there um, the potential for this technology for quite a long time. Um, I think if you're looking for examples outside of finance, uh, there have been some examples. I think um, uh, Walmart and um, uh, uh, Maersk have done some supply chain related things that you know have some interesting components to them, uh, and you know, those are those are some of the the big areas that I would point to for kind of examples of what people have done. Got it. Well, I'm going to leave it a little open for you now. I mean, we've talked about a lot of issues and concepts, and I feel like we, we have been through kind of a a little guideline to to what's happening in you know in the field at least superficially what are what are some of the remaining issues that you are excited about going forward that we might may not have covered so far so uh, you know i think that the um the areas that i i would encourage people to think about is you know what are the opportunities that uh have been limited by ability to um, access financial networks and to think about what are the things where uh, if you are uh, an 18-year-old software developer sitting in India that were previously unthinkable that you can touch, uh, those areas are now being opened up. Um, we, we've, you know, worked with some folks and literally when I was 18 year old in India, we invested, uh, in a couple of brothers who were, you know, uh, 19 and 21, um, out of Bangalore who built a, a financial protocol that actually gives you access to all these other ones, uh, that has over $50 million sitting in it today. And I think that the amount of innovation that is possible now is just mind blowing, and it's it's starting to accelerate 
the the pace of development so much that it's it's worth trying something out yourself um, and just exploring the possibilities of saying like, well, what if I really can just build any financial tool imaginable? Like, what what would I build? Um, because because it really is now open to anyone. That that's fascinating. Um, maybe maybe lastly then. A lot of these things you you said eighteen year olds, but uh, a a lot of these developments uh, could potentially also change finance for for younger now. Uh, for younger people that are trying to get into this, even you know even in uh, in the K through twelve system, what are some of the places they can go to, in a very accessible way, and understand what's what's going on? I'm saying this because you know I'm I'm the parent of of kids that are really. Excitable, you know, uh, when it comes to, to to new new things, new technologies, they are exploring a lot of things. Kids are really interested in in, in a lot of different areas. And what are some of the choices they have to kind of pick up on this early, so that they arrive at uh, you know the MITs and uh, you know community colleges and wherever they end up, all of all of these youngsters of today yeah. um, and, and are prepared for this world with uh, so much opportunity to innovate, so much opportunity to learn, and, and, and also so many ways, as we have explored, to be financial actors, not just earlier than before, but much more independently uh, than before. Yeah, well, I'll say as, as a parent, but, but of, of children who are not yet teenagers, um, I, I almost hesitate to recommend specific online forums to go to because, you know, uh, it, can be, it can be difficult to, to know what's going to be there and what's going to be child appropriate. I, I don't know of any good resources that are specifically tailored for, um, you know, young adults. And I think, you know, maybe that's a, a good opportunity space for somebody to, to build some tools for that. Um, I, I did. Ha- I do have a, a family friend who, um, you know, when he when he was having his bar mitzvah, um, we gifted him a small amount of Bitcoin. I think it was like fifty dollars of Bitcoin or something like that a, a few years back. And for him, you know, that he then had to figure out, okay, well, what do I what do I do with this? Like, <laughs> what? Is, how do I even like store this? And he got so interested and started learning and sending me questions about it and doing research on his own. Um, I, I think in some ways, just like giving kids some small amount of something to, to play around with almost like an allowance is a great way just to inspire their curiosity because look, they're the learning capacity of kids today is just I think so beyond uh, what what you and I probably experienced, you know, when we were their age, they just have access to the internet and to tools um, and ways of interacting with their peers that were just unimaginable for us. And so I I have a lot of faith in, in young people that if they are given a, a small chance and a small exposure to this space, that they're just going to understand it so much faster, right? I mean, I had to see Bitcoin at least two or three times before you know it, it registered for me that there might be something worthwhile there. And I think a lot of people are the same way. So I, I think you know, youth today are are gonna gonna grasp this, and and in some ways, them coming into being more meaningful economic actors in the world is what's going to help push this technology to its next stage of growth because they're just going to intuitively grasp it for, for young people. The idea that, wait, it's, it's after 5 PM. I, I can't send money. What, what is that? Like that, wait, markets are, are closed. We, 
it's it's daytime somewhere in the world. Why why are these not global markets open twenty four seven? Why can't I access funds that I own uh, because of some arbitrary restrictions on the you know, the numbers in the clock? Uh, I, so I I think you know Gen Z or the Zoomers whoever are just they inherently grasp uh, the opportunity here much more than than people like you and me. Well, I think that's a, a great note to end on. I just, you know, because the timelines here, you know, are decades, I just wanted to bring it to that because, you know, it is in some ways the children of today that will mature with this technology. So it's it's really important that they, I think, grasp it as early as possible. Thanks for all your advice, Dan. It's been wonderful to reconnect with you. And I truly hope that we can uh, do this again. And until then, thanks so much. And thanks for... Uh, educating me and hopefully my listeners. Yeah, thanks for the thanks for the discussion. You have just listened to episode 5 of the Futurized podcast with host Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of decentralized finance. Our guest was Dan Elitzer, investor at IDEO Collab Ventures. My takeaway is that the promise of open finance is a world where everyone can freely create or deploy new financial instruments and business models without or with less of the intermediary constraints that traditional institutions have put on the system. Even if that will take decades, this is cause for optimism. It may also speed up innovation, but it may perhaps not disrupt banks to the point that they disappear, which indicates that it stands a chance to strike a balance between change and continuity.